1: All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Deep End podcast with myself, Rick Alexander, and my partner, Danielle McGinnis. Today, we're going to talk about embodiment. And really, what we wanted to do with this podcast was to kind of look at our different perspectives, see where our perspectives differ, where they're the same, and just talk about our relationship to embodiment. Of course, Danielle, you have the Embodied Podcast. It's something you've been talking about for a long time. For me personally, like it's interesting. It's something that I've like slowly come home to, actually, over the course of the last couple of years, really influenced by my yoga practice and my own spiritual practice. So I thought maybe what we could do is just we'll start by talking about what influences our embodiment work, the, the perspective, the worldview that we're coming from, um, and then and just kind of see where the conversation goes. And like as always, I think just probably important for people to know if this is your first deep end, we do these to explore a topic and just kind of see where it goes. And we have no idea where that is when we start it. So here we are one minute in.
0: Less structure, more mess, right. for sure.
1: Which is good. Which is a good metaphor for the body, actually. Actually, yes. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I think good. a lot of people, like myself included, spend a lot of my life trying to escape the mess of the embodied experience of being human. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Well, I know you. You are a somatic experience practic, somatic experiencing practitioner. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of what guides your work and thoughts in the embodiment space?
0: Yeah, so just to, I guess, make a disclaimer, I think embodiment is kind of like a buzzword. Yeah. Um, and by talking about embodiment, I by no means went to hold any projections of being an expert on embodiment. I think we're all embodied to some extent. Hmm. So we all know what embodied is to all of us. Um, but what got me interested in embodiment work I would say is the stark contrast that I felt between my mind and my body. Like the separation, the split that I felt personally. Mm. And then I started to explore emotions in particular and and connecting to how emotions actually are rooted in and through the body. And that was really fascinating to me. Mm. And it was exciting. And it, it drew me into this really deep exploration of the body and then I stumbled across Marion Woodman's work who is um, I think one of the most profound Jungian scholars of our time. Hmm. Um, She passed away I think in 2018.
1: Do you have a good book like to recommend for people that are just like oh I want to I'm interested in this?
0: A Marion Woodman book? Yeah
1: Marion Woodman particularly.
0: I mean she's not easy to read. Um, I mean before her path as a Jungian she was I think a literature teacher mm. so she re- there's a lot of poetry and a lot of like Shakespeare and like mm. a lot of it's, it's hard to like it you kind of have to push through it if you don't have that poetic basis of mind at that time yeah but I mean she's it, easy
1: to listen to though
0: yeah totally YouTube lectures, videos yeah. things like that um but addiction to perfection is a good one because I do think that we have that in Mm. relationship to matter in particular so anyway um marion woodman's work got me into kind of the depth psychologically oriented view of the body and of matter and the material experience and then over the past year i would say six months to a year listening to robbie bosnak who's a Jungian analyst talk about alchemy um he created this um theory I guess called the embodied imagination Um, and so I've been studying his work listening to him speak about alchemy which involves matter Mm -hmm. Um, and so those are kind of like the different paths kind of like emotional intelligence but still feeling kind of disconnected from the felt sense and then getting into somatic experiencing work by Peter Levine so working through the traumatic perspective And then this depth psychologically oriented view. So it's kind of an amalgamation of all of that. That at this point, how I see embodiment is almost like the complex experiential felt sense of life as we move through it. Mm. Something like that. It's not a great definition, but I think it's hard to define embodiment. Yeah. Yeah. Just go with that.
1: Yeah. I define embodiment as soul becoming body um, because I think that that's what we're here to do. We're like primarily we're here to incarnate our soul for our soul to actually become embodied and to live in the world and have a very particular experience of being in the world. Um,
0: I left out cowshed's work, Donald cowshed. Yeah. Um, that actually is incredibly influential in my yeah in my process too. And you know, when you said that, it reminded me of what he talks about in his book called the Indwelling Process. <laughs> I love um, that. Yeah. Which I think is pretty spot on of like spirit, soul, whatever trying to indwell in your material existence. I like mm. that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's so fascinating because growing up, I felt like and, and just to clarify the difference between my projection and whatever actually happened, like I have no idea, but the like what I took away from me growing up especially in church was this idea that like there's an ideal that we need to escape to you know that's heaven we need to get out of here <laughs> and we will be delivered from this mess and go to heaven right and so Man, that's
0: that's so interesting that you say that because yours comes from church mm-hmm. and mine comes from like a Cosmo magazine that I see on mm. on the side table of like there's an ideal of what will make you perfect mm. in
1: this world yeah yeah that is the same thing actually that's fascinating
0: yeah I'm uh, just like oh man here's just the image of God the the projection of whatever the image of God is and like the projection onto women
1: yeah but actually it's really helpful to know that if you walk into a random church in the US and you walk into a random I don't know magazine store or whatever you're actually working with the same level of consciousness mm. that's helpful to know actually I think yeah. Um, wow. fascinating, but so, but it was interesting because I, there's a part of me that like bought that because it's easier. Like in some sense, it's actually harder to be here. Actually the best definition of hell that I've ever heard anywhere that I just always stick with is when your, when your body and your mind are in different places,
0: mm-hmm. you're in
1: hell. So it's not easier from the perspective that if you're always trying to escape, you're never where you are. Thus, you're always in hell, but it's easier mentally to commit to, not dealing with the mess, but just leaving, just escaping.
0: Well, I mean, in Cal Shed's book, he talks about the connection to Lucifer, the bringer of light, how he got upset that like God was going to create these like messy humans mm. and like bring them. And so he like fleed and like is refusing the embodiment process, mm. like refuse to incarnate into a body. And so that's interesting that you say hell is separate from the mm. embodied existence because that is in inherent in that myth if you read it in that way.
1: Mm. So yeah. like the
0: light, the angel, the bringer of light is refusing to indwell and I think that is what happens when we're in our hellish
1: right. states
0: psychologically is that psyche and matter are separate.
1: Okay, so here's what's really interesting. And this is where, when you get to the esoteric dimensions of religion, you start to see a lot of overlap. But this is where what's so fascinating, because I was going to bring up that I think the Christ myth is a myth of embodiment, mm-hmm. right? Because you have all of these... And so, in some sense, you could just think of the idea that Christ is the thing that redeems the what the devil did. So now, from that perspective, it's really fascinating, right? Because Christ is the embodied God. So it's the it is the opposite of what you're saying, which is really interesting. And what's so different about it is you look around the world and you have all of these religions that are really based on escapism. I mean, Gnosticism was like that. And there's a, there's kind of a war that goes on in the church, like in the Western tradition in Christianity between the church fathers and the Gnostics. And the church fathers sort of went out mainstream, but Gnostic sort of impregnates the church fathers with all of these ideas and escapism is one of them there is this ideal it's not the pleroma anymore but it's heaven so there's some things that actually do get pulled in and so then when you're me growing up in you know 1988 or whatever 1995 and you're in church you're like seeing that the um you're getting that you're getting remnants of that war which is so fascinating because i i said this before but there's always a song we would sing like i'll fly away someday you know and i just i always remember that but it's interesting that there's a part of me that always felt like we can't possibly be here in this world to escape it like that seems so fucking stupid to me like that can't be the reason we're not here to leave like that can't be it Um, just a personal kind of thing that guided me and then as I started exploring other religions like you see the same thing in strains of Buddhism you definitely see it in strains of the east and one of the big criticisms of the east is that people are um, that it's an escapist religion that you're not in your life that you're just escaping into meditation the whole time or whatever and that's a pretty I think that's a pretty like uh, not a very nuanced view because there's a lot going on in that but there's certainly strains and that's what i'm getting at that are escapist and so what really influences me the most is what you get in like the eighth century people don't really know where it starts but gets big in the eighth century which is like tantric yoga and so in tantric yoga all of a sudden what you have is that the world it's got it's a system of viewing reality but what's interesting is that in tantric experience there's a descent from shakti from the highest god you could say goddess all the way down to you but what that means and so the tantric path is about reascending that path upward but what's so interesting about it is because it's layered because all the layers of the self get progressively more dense as you get to the body the body is actually the only layer that you can experience all layers simultaneously and so now you get this tantric prerogative which is to both Be liberated while living a very particular life in the world in your body.
0: So what I'm hearing there is the inherent paradox of embodiment. So with that, it's to be liberated, you have to be in the body. Embodied. Yes. Right? To be free, you have to be held in the body. Right. So that's a paradox. And that's interesting because I feel like this is kind of like the overlaying theme of embodiment is that it, I think it is something akin to creating a capacity to not only just psychologically hold that paradox but physiologically hold the paradox so that your system doesn't go into overdrive by being in the body because yes. that's what I see in, in trauma. Well, let's just take an example of like, okay, so somebody that loved you immensely, right, and made you feel great mm-hmm. could be the same person that ab- abused you harshly mm-hmm. and treated you terrible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's the inherent paradox of the body. I want to move towards it and I want to move away from it. Mm. That's like, there's a push and a pull, and I feel like that's the same thing in spiritual practice, too, is there's a kind of a push towards spirit, and there's a pull down into matter.
1: Yes, and that is kundalini, actually.
0: Well, I think that's a lot of things. Yeah,
1: but But that's the idea of kundalini.
0: But I do think that's the inherent paradox of embodiment of... Mm oh, there's contrasting experiences happening that are complex because they're not necessarily the same thing. Mm. And you can't escape into one side or the other. And this brings it back to Jung's spectrum of spirit and matter. Like, you can't escape that. You can't move into spirit without being pulled back into matter. Mm -hmm. You can't go into the instinctual matter without spirit. Mm. Like...
1: It's right. not possible. Right. And that that's where, like, the Ramdas line of, like, you realize, oh, I'm not free, I'm high, mm-hmm. right? There's a huge difference between being high and being free because if you're high, you've got to come back down, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're not free if there's something you – if there's a place you can't go, something you have to avoid, something that can make you unfree, then by definition, you're not free, mm-hmm. right? You're under the conditions of a certain experience. And so um, – I want to say like I'm going to pull from all these different spiritual paths, but like on my podcast probably coming up, I'll start. I've written a lot of papers on them individually, Kundalini, Vajrayana Buddhism, Tantra, all these different things. So if you're interested in the particulars of them, I will I'll be like airing some of that coming up here. But anyway, in Tantra there, it also becomes Buddhist as you know, as Spiritual paths evolve, and and as tantra starts to influence Buddhism, you get Vajrayana Buddhism, which is which is essentially tantric yoga, but a Buddhist aesthetic with a Buddhist god image and all that, which is non theistic. So there's um, Reggie Ray, this teacher. He has a book called The Somatic Descent, and I'm like, I really love his work. It's like the work that opened me up to all of this. But one of the things that he says that's so interesting to me is he's like, you know, all of the problems in the world. All of the, you know, the, what the, in Buddhism they would call the world of 10,000 things. He's like, they're not out there. Like everything you're experiencing is in there. It's in the body. Everything you're experiencing is in the body. And so the job then is to increase the body's capacity to hold what is, mm-hmm. what is happening. Yes. You know, and then I that allows that. future embodiment.
0: Well, I think, you know, kind of circling back around this a little bit is the importance of, um, and Jung really amplified this, the importance of the subjective experience Mm. of the individual, because I think in Freud's theory, there was kind of like almost this propensity to reduce it down to an objective other, Mm. meaning like, because this happened in the outer world, this is what's happening in the inner world where it's kind of this causation and reduction and down into objective reality. Mm. And it keeps them separate. Whereas that perspective, right, is like whatever problem's happening out there is also you're experiencing it in here. So the right. subject and object aren't so separate right. as you may think. They're different, but you can kind of hold one foot in both and that's, that's the hard part is like not being, again, just like not being pulled into instinctual um, material reality and not being pulled all the way into spirit. You kind of have to keep one foot in your subjective experience and one foot in objective experience. That's where I feel like embodiment um, containers are great with a practitioner because you have a person that is mildly objective, right? They're not necessarily pulled into your subjective experience you learn how to hold what you're experiencing with maybe something else that might be different from that does that make sense
1: i'm struggling with this okay so i'm struggling with the idea that there's an objective world actually that's what i'm struggling with
0: i'm saying objective meaning different from your subjectivity okay so if you are you're saying i'm feeling this right Right?
1: I'm feeling angry. Okay. Okay.
0: And I ask a question uh-huh. that like opens you up into maybe something else that you're feeling. Well, just because you're feeling angry doesn't mean I'm feeling angry
1: too. Mm. I see what you're saying. Okay.
0: So it's, it's a different yeah. perspective. Yeah. And I think like a lot of spiritual practices kind of like, have the propensity even psychological practices have the illusion of the objectivity and you're not really honoring the subjective experience of what is
1: right totally yeah yeah i mean yeah i could say something about that i think that the it's it's really important for me and i think when we get to depth psychology that's where you and i overlap the most And a lot of the papers I've been writing are looking at these different Eastern embodiment practices and overlaying them on depth psychology and saying like, what, what is the psychological perspective of this religion? Because, you know, I don't, it's hard for us to just like buy into a religion or uh, the modern person is riddled by doubt because we kind of have a deep understanding of quantifiably how the world works. Right. But, what I think myth gives us is the qualitative aspect of how the world works, mm-hmm. right? And so one way to think about that is if you think about like ancient Greece where these myths were, like where a lot of our myths were starting to grow and expand and were the way that we explained how we are in the world, like if you read the Iliad or something from Homer, when a person is in war, they're not like, oh, I'm experiencing I, all of a sudden, I have an influx of passion. It's not like that. It's like Athena grabbed me. It's like Mars took hold of me and laid claim on me and forced me into battle, right? Okay. And so the reason I'm saying that is because in that that mythic world, what they're ex, what they're labeling with these gods and goddesses is the qualitative aspect, your lived experience of being in the world, what it's actually like.
0: Yeah, it's the whatness.
1: Yes, and so. Um that's where I think like having an idea of these different myths, like that's the world there're they're speaking to the embodied world. They're mm-hmm. speaking to the not this objective idealistic world of philosophy or science. They're speaking to the world. What's it like for you to be in your life right now? How do you experience yourself? Um, and so, yeah, I think anyway, I think a lot of these.
0: Well, that um, brings to mind, you know, like, I think myth in particular, poetry, music, mm-hmm. all those different avenues tap into an impli- uh, implicit sense of being itself. Mm-hmm. Meaning, I've always known this to be true and I don't have words for it. I don't have language, left brain. Right. I don't have the rational understanding of, of why there's resonance happening. But I feel like myth stories, music, poetry. those all thi- they, those things pull us out of that kind of habitual consciousness of the rational mind and take you into the implicit state of being where there's truth there and mm. you don't know you don't even need to know what it means. And I think that's the most awe-striking thing about embodiment is you have a religious experience, And it takes something that was once split and binds it back together. Mm -hmm. So like you live half of your life completely dissociated, feeling as if you're separate from your body. You're not, but like feeling as if you are. Mm -hmm. And you have a mystical experience of awe and wonder and it taps into that implicit nature of being and it like gives you enough bridge to like feel as if you're... Here mm-hmm. again. You have indwelled.
1: Mm. You have
0: a chance to glimpse at the whatness. Like maybe like you you talk about um doing mushrooms for the first time. You glimpse into the whatness, like oh, the sky, the way the sky looks and the way the the food tastes, and like that's an embodied experience of the mm-hmm. world. Yeah, yeah. So and it,
1: that's, mushrooms were the first thing that made me even consider the fact that being in the body is a good thing actually
0: or being in the body is just a thing
1: no i think i think it's a good thing i do i think <laughs> we, like being, we could
0: have a deep end about that
1: and we would have to define good but right. i just think to be <laughs> what human do you mean by good? <laughs> yeah well like that gets back to the idea of like it's okay so you said it's a thing it's what is we're mm-hmm. not here to escape we're here to be here to indwell, to bring something of our soul into this world—that to me mm-hmm. is embodiment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to look at culture too. So you mentioned Robert Robbie Bosniak, who is like he created embodied active imagination and talks a lot about that idea. Active imagination is for people that don't know just a technique for working with the unconscious um, psychologically, and we all we all get presented with imagination from the unconscious in different ways. Some people hear words, some people get imagery, you know, uh, some people will paint to express, right? And this is art. This is the expression of the unconscious. And there's a whole debate about whether what Young's doing is art or not, right? <laughs> um but there's another one that comes out of dance therapy from this lady, Mary Stark's White House, and she creates this thing called authentic movement. But one of the things, and that's so that's what I have really been studying a lot and what i feel really drawn to it's another way of embodied active imagination but one of the things that she brings to light in her like discourses about authentic movement is the fact that the world is constant from the time we're kids she's like when you're a kid you know if you look up at the sky or you look down at a at the at a bug on the ground you do it with your whole body you know, like a kid like looks up with their whole body and then they crouch way down and they look down with their whole body. But as you grow and become an adult, it becomes less and less acceptable to move. And so then your entire, like the most movement you have is like your head is just sort of uh, like on a, I don't know, it's got like such a small range of motion. You know, when you're in a plane, like you can't, it, it's like everything we do, it's like we're not, culture doesn't just, Funnel us into a way of understanding things and paradigms that we think within it funnels us into paradigms of behavior and movement, too And so there's like so one of the things you start to discover is that the body has its own language of expression and What happens when we cut off the body's movement so that we can exist like in school you sit all day And you have a very small area. And hopefully you have recess, but that goes away soon. And so then you have even less movement available to you. And if you do want to move, it's either art or it's sports. And so if you don't really fall into those two categories, or even if you do, they're pretty limited time in your life. So essentially you are cutting yourself off from your ability, your body's innate ability to express itself. Mm -hmm. And so you're cutting yourself off from your ability to understand what the hell it's saying. And then it takes its revenge on us through compulsion, through all the many strains that we have from sitting all day and from not moving all day so um
0: so this brings to mind a question about okay so if the cultural milieu is taking us in a direction towards um, more structure and rigidity around the embodied experience i would say that's a byproduct of not to sound stereotypical but it sounds like a byproduct of a patriarchal society
1: totally well you where, can't say it's different where because structure that's and what order, it's in, right
0: yeah structure and order um, are kind of the highest value
1: right and then movement becomes utilitarian anytime right. you move it's to get somewhere it's to do something to play a sport you' you're no longer moving for the sense of movement
0: so it's interesting to me one of my classmates did a a beautiful presentation shout out kirsten um on the remembrance of sophia mm. okay so like the remembrance of of wisdom coming from the feminine um it's interesting because i'm thinking about like individuation as Jung talked about it it's coming creating an awareness around your sense of self uh separate from just the cultural kind of like cog you know you're not just the cog in the wheel that's serving just the collective ideal Mm -hmm. right there's something else that you're here to do that's unique that might not be completely in resonance with culture Mm -hmm. so is part of the individuation journey for a person who is living at this moment in time actually about the remembrance of that feminine wisdom that's why I feel like embodiment is actually quite big right now is I think there's an attempt at that, but I think it is serving, like you said, it's, it's, uh, being filtered through patriarchal values. Mm. So it's only done if you can get something out of it, Yeah. if it benefits you, if it makes you more efficient at your job so that you can blah, 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 right. you know, right. um, instead of the remembrance of feminine wisdom because it's also a massive part of your essence. Right. Even if it doesn't serve you at all in your life. Right. And I think that's actually where a lot of crises, used to be the midlife crises, but kind of earlier crises at this point, come up is I think sometimes the, the feminine is speaking. Mm-hmm. The body is speaking and saying like, listen, I'm not going to do this anymore and it shows up maybe as neuroses it shows up as um, symptomology like you said aches or pains or maybe it shows up as like fears yeah compulsion
1: is like the biggest one i think
0: yeah and prevents you from unconsciously just going along without remembering that embodiment is a part of this incarnation experience
1: right right yeah i think a reclamation of the body and the feminine are the same thing in some sense
0: what's interesting to me right because there is this theory around like i mean you could trace this back to like religions and philosophical worldviews and i don't know that much about it but what i'm thinking about is like when you're born into this Existence. At what point does that soul spirit indwell into the body?
1: 49 days. Well, <laughs> according to Tibetan Buddhism. 49. Okay. Yeah.
0: After birth.
1: Uh-huh. What's
0: well, interesting... Well, it's, it's
1: an indwelling process that's complete at day 49. Okay. And that life essence is then when it, it's used to like thrust you forward into life. And then when it's no longer needed and things become more autonomic and the ego develops... It, that energy then sits at the bottom of the spine as kundalini. Mm. And if you want to wake up, it's that energy that you summon upward.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for that thorough yeah. thorough <laughs> explanation. Yeah. Um, but what came to mind was, okay, so when you're like birthed into existence, right, there's this indwelling process that occurs. And it's fun- I'm thinking about the people that go through their, their whole lives really unconscious of their body. You know, like completely unconscious. And maybe it's on their deathbed Mm. that like something happens where a little piece of embodiment starts to happen Mm. right before they exit out. Mm -hmm. I just think that like birth and death motif has a lot to do with embodiment. Mm. Um, For me in particular, going through my plant medicine experience, I'm not sure. I don't know, but I'm not sure if I really took a full breath in this incarnated lifetime until that plant medicine experience. Mm. Like I remember going through this kind of push pull of like life death um, scenario, and there was like a whole psychological like acceptance piece of that. Like, Mm -hmm. are you going to indwell here? And the moment I, like, said yes and, like, surrendered into the indwelling process, it was, a like, a full, like, Mm. oh, my gosh, I can actually breathe. Like, I will never forget that breath the rest Mm. of my life. Um, And I don't know if that's what it's like when we first come into this world. I'm not sure. But I do think that there's something about birth and death dynamics around embodiment.
1: Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean it's the intro and exit from, so yeah, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, and like how many, um, how many moments in our lives prevent us from indwelling, being embodied, because they're life threatening, mm-hmm. and so because they're on the verge of death, or at least our nervous system perceives it as such. Mm-hmm. It's a traumatic experience, and so part of our Spirit soul flees because there's a death like threat. Right. A threat of psychic annihilation, a psychic death. And there's a split that happens. So I think there's a really interesting weaving with life and death and embodiment and indwelling and trauma and being here.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think what we all want, and this is. You know, I'm speaking on behalf of 7 billion people. But I think what we all want <laughs> is to be alive. We want to be fully alive, fully connected to the life around us and, and in our lives. And to feel the, what that is fully. That's imbo- it's embodiment. Because if, if, if our consciousness leaves in that dissociative process that you're talking about, we can't connect. We can't do what we're here to do. And we yeah. feel it and we chase it everywhere.
0: In that sense of aliveness, just to kind of circle around that one more time, like it is aliveness to me is a conscious connection to the whatness. Mm-hmm. Maybe not even conscious. Like as a kid, you're not
1: right conscious of That's it. That's true. There are so many. But as an
0: adult, I think it's a conscious connection to the whatness the quality of being here.
1: Right. Yet yeah, so fascinating. What's it pers- like to
0: be in my life?
1: Right. You're right, totally. And I was telling you, like, it was just after a myth and philosophy class where it was like one of those classes where you're just getting these just you're getting your mind exploded over and over and over. And you and anyway, after the class me and my classmates were talking about The sort of underlying myth that was at play during that class, and that's at play right now in our lives. And as we started to grasp what the real mythic interpretation of the world looks like, you could feel this like tangible almost illumination occurring, this like inspiration that was happening or enthusiasm, quite literally, in Theos. And then there was the recognition that we all knew this at one point. Like, we all were just like, man, when we were kids, we knew this. We didn't have this really complex like definition for how we got there but we did know it just in our essence just in our being
0: yeah i don't know why maybe it's this embodied imagination but like that took me right into like a memory of playing with barbies Mm -hmm. where i wasn't me Mm. I was Barbie. Mm. I was Barbie and I was interacting with Ken. And like I was in the dollhouse. It was like there, there's not a separation. And that was so exciting to me. Mm. Like that, whatever life force is directing that.
1: Mm. You um, would let yourself do that. Yeah. Be there kind of thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And how that does go away. I mean, I think isn't that the participation mystique that young talks about is like being completely possessed into that type of consciousness that at a certain level in maturity or development that has to be fractured away so that you can develop consciousness, right? Totally. meet consciousness with the unconscious. Right. Um, but it's interesting how that's, that can actually, it's not that childlike enthusiasm. It's, Childish adaptation,
1: mm, right?
0: Like it shows. Like if it doesn't become conscious, it shows up not childlike but childish. Yeah, totally. And that's a shame.
1: Yeah, it's a difference between like um, arrested development in the kingdom of heaven, quite literally.
0: Yeah, and that that sucks because now you're trying to navigate this incredibly complex, paradoxical world as a child. Th- through the framework
1: of a child. Right, totally. Yeah. And
0: I would argue that, I don't know percentage wise, but maybe half mm-hmm. of the world, I think ultimately, like if we're looking at the development of consciousness, we're really in this, um, I don't think we're in like the adult phase of consciousness as a collective. Mm. Like, I don't think that we're there. I think we're between some child adolescent phase that's what it feels like to me like maybe adolescent where maybe you just get your license and you're learning how to drive but like you're not responsible at all but you're trying to act like you are uh-huh. like it's kind of like that
1: yeah but, but that's necessary totally for us to individuate that push and pull it's like a pull back to the your consciousness back to childhood back to eden back to the innocence then you get there and there's a fucking you know flaming swords guarding the garden of eden they say no you got to go the other way yeah right and so then There's no turning back. there is no turning back and so i think that that push pull i mean that's the that creates the psychic heat that leads to consciousness right so mm-hmm. we almost have to go through that i think
0: yeah and i think that those periods of time i think that's why it's really important for embodiment to like kind of kick off at this period of time yeah, because totally. For my work in particular, it is about creating enough capacity in the system for complexity and paradox. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, I mean, I've seen it in my own somatic experiencing work, like the reversion back into, oh my God, I can't hold this. It's like too much. Mm-hmm. Like it's so, it's too much. And so we can go back and kind of repair those spaces in our psyche where body had to flee because it was so unsafe or go into hiding or whatever body
1: or ego or consciousness what are you talking about
0: Mm, body's here right um consciousness
1: right okay so dissociation yeah
0: dissociation had to happen because it was so intolerable um to be with that experience And that's where I think going back and creating enough containment and safety around those experiences and letting the you now experience it through your eyes and through the eyes of the child version of you or the younger version of you or the traumatized version of you
1: Hmm.
0: and seeing like, oh, they saw it this way, but I see it this way. And it's not the same. Hmm can those sit together in contrast, in difference, in complexity? Hmm. And you kind of like the practitioner hopefully will hold that vulnerable child part or young part or traumatized part as it learns that like, okay, that was really dangerous then, but maybe not so much now.
1: Right, right. And so what's interesting is, you know, if you undergo that process that you're talking about, the process of increasing capacity in the body to hold the paradoxical and complex nature of reality then you do gain something not to say you do it to gain but like when the body is able then to express itself and you start to listen which is is why i think embodied active imagination is so brilliant like you do gain something Like, look at how people eat. Like, look at the whole world. Like, my whole life is just like this diet to this diet to this diet. Now, like, I got something out of all of those diets, but, like, that's masculine. That's structure. Let me put myself in the right structure so that I can replace my ego function so that I don't have to decide, Mm -hmm. right? But if you develop the capacity, like, one thing I've noticed in the last year of my yoga practice is by paying very, very particular attention to my breath, it teaches me how to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are things you gain and that's a far, that's a much more feminine way of going about the world, right? There is no, it's not putting myself in a structure. It's not replacing the ego function. It's just sort of flowing with what is.
0: Mm-hmm. And there are
1: some ups and some downs of that experience. But like, it's a huge, I don't know, to my mind, it's like, you, you recover something of like what it what it feels like to really be here.
0: Mm. Well, I think it's it's a openness to the spo- spontaneous emerging world. Hmm. That's Verveke's reciprocal opening.
1: Do you want to explain that? Just Yeah. I have, to uh, drop yeah. a footnote real quick for people that want to yeah, understand Yeah, just a little it.
0: footnote. Um, Verveke was studying, uh, John Verveke, I think he's a cognitive neuroscience guy, right?
1: Cognitive psychologist, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, And he was studying the work of this guy who was studying addictions and this guy that was studying addictions was writing about the process of what's called reciprocal narrowing, meaning that like when you experience trauma of some kind, what happens is your inner subjective, well, your outer subjective or your outer world collapses. So Mm -hmm. you focus in on kind of the small world to like kind of like push out threat. Mm-hmm. So you just focus on the small little world that's safe. Mm-hmm. And what that happen- what happens with that is it narrows your inner world. Mm-hmm. And then as your inner world narrows, then your outer world narrows. And then your inner world narrows. So it's this reciprocal narrowing of the outer, narrowing of the inner, narrowing of the outer. Narrowing- so things just can pl- start to close down. And that's the addictive personality is, is almost like an escape out of that reciprocal narrowing. It's trying to find an opening mm. out of that narrowing experience, from what I understand.
1: Yeah, one of the best definitions of addiction I've ever heard is a narrowing of what excites you.
0: Right. And, it, I mean, it's right impulse, wrong rit- ritual, right? right? The mm-hmm. impulse is to create opening, but it's uh, reinforcing the negative feedback loop of narrowing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And Verveke posited the assumption of like, well, if if there's reciprocal narrowing, there has to be reciprocal opening. And that's what he um, talks about love in this way or connection or attunement Mm -hmm. in this space or those religious awe-evoking experiences where they open the outer world and then our subjective experience opens. We're like, oh... It could be different. Mm. Oh, I see differently. And then your outer world opens and then your inner world opens. And it's this reciprocal opening. Mm. And it's interesting because when I'm doing somatic experiencing with people, I have this slinky in my office that I'll take to sessions to explain to people that like the nervous system and basically all of nature is an expansion and contraction. Mm. It's inherent in existence itself.
1: Mm-hmm
0: where at some points you're going to feel like really expansive and open and maybe there's positive emotion there. And then there's moments where things will contract and your world will narrow a little bit. But what happens is when that rhythm starts to get disrupted or dysregulated where it's
1: only narrowing,
0: right? Where it's only contraction. There's hmm. no opening. There's no expansion. Hmm. And a big part of Creating capacity for that paradox is restoring the inherent rhythm of expansion and contraction. Hmm. Can you physiologically and psychologically hold a moment that is contractive hmm. and recognize that it's just the other side of expansion? Right. So Yeah. I
1: little love footnote. That. Yeah. <laughs> so what is what does reciprocal opening in the body look like then?
0: Well, in the body, like the subjective experience of opening,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, I would say like, I'm trying to think of like a practical example for people. Um, let's say using the example of like, you know, my my fears of being home alone, right? Um, before doing SE work on that, mm. basically I would, when you would leave um, for overnight trips, I would go into this very contractive, Panicky, anxiety provoking place. And there was no space in there for expansion or even a recognition that, like, everything's okay. Mm. And so, what opening looks like for that is after doing some work on it and restoring that rhythmic nature, is recognizing, oh, there's fear. And also, looking around my environment and recognizing everything's okay. Hmm. So there's safety, so fear and safety can actually coexist at the same time. And that opens something that was once incredibly contracted and narrowed. And so next time I am home alone, things are a little bit different. And I'm like, oh, there's not as much fear. There's not as much contraction. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that a good example?
1: I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, just knowing that, like... Because I, I, it's so interesting because I teach a very similar idea in the talk that I'm giving right now, The Quest to Find Meaning in Life. And it's so interesting because I talk about this idea that, like, you and the world have this reciprocal relationship to each other. And that, like... And it's also... it's It's in opening and contracting. It's also in, like, giving and getting. You know, like, you you individuate, you go on this journey so that you have something then to offer the world.
0: Well, I wanted to add this in because I'm studying personality right now. I think it's important. Sure. Is that um, it seems as if the extrovert in particular has a a higher predisposition to orient to the outer world. Mm. So it is like your inner world and outer world. Whereas an introvert, that inner world is a world of its own. Mm. So I think it's important, like for, shout out to the introverts out there, um, like you can do the same reciprocal opening with yourself, meaning different parts of you, right? So let's just say that this conversation in particular is causing reciprocal opening because you're um, giving me insight into things that I didn't once know. And I'm like, curiosity is evoked. And I'm like, oh, yeah,
1: and, and we're you both opening, same, right?
0: Well, there's a way that you can do that with your, um, you and your subjective I, your, your ego can do that with not just outer people, but the, the people in your psyche, Mm. the persons, the animals, the images in your psyche. And that's where dream work, I think gets incredibly creative and Mm. exciting is that's like embodied imagination work. Right. So You're going into this dreamscape, and in the dream, the situation played out. So you think that you have to like just interpret the dream in that schema, but you can ask a question. Mm. And then it causes this whole opening to happen in your inner psychic space that might not have ever happened. Mm. And I think what that does is it creates more safety with the inner world because the inner world can be really scary for a lot of people just as scary as the outer world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to put that in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's totally. really
0: important. So
1: yeah, I like that. So we're at 49 ish minutes now. So um, probably the last thing that I want to say just as I'm thinking about all this that we're talking about is like, you know, all these theories and stuff are great. And at the same time, you know, what people are concerned with is like figuring out how to be in their life, really. Yeah. And I just want to put it out there that like your body's not confused. You know, when you have decisions to make, when you're being tyrannized by the environment, when you feel like you have to make a decision, you know, and you're like torn between two jobs, people, like all of this stuff that happens, the body's never confused. It's not. It knows exactly what it wants. It knows the food that it wants to eat. It knows the experiences it wants to have. And it's always been here, even when you haven't been. And so, like, I just want to put that out there because I think tapping into that, that's the juice. Like, that's... So... Yeah.
0: I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah, shoot. Because
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will...
0: I think there's inherent intelligence in the way that your body is navigating the world, but it can become dysregulated and tangled up, nervous system-wise.
1: Okay, i that.
0: And that gets confusing for the subjective person because you have conflicting impulses. So something, you know, you have a sensation that's overcoupled with anger and then you have a sensation that's over coupled with fear and then you have this desire of longing and all those things can be really confusing for your sense of self. Because
1: you're not connected to the deep wisdom of the body.
0: Well, I think recognizing that like at one point your body had to create those pathways to keep you alive in here. Mm Mm-hmm. So those like the sensation coupled with anger and with fear, like there was a wisdom in that at one period of time. Yes. But I think a lot of the remembering of the inherent wisdom of the body is actually getting help with uncoupling those tangles so it clears up space so that you can learn to trust the inherent intelligence of the body. Yeah. Because it is intelligent even if you dissociate. And it might not um, be operating in a way that's helpful, quote unquote, for you at this moment. Mm-hmm. But if you're here and you're alive and you're breathing, there's an intelligence and a wisdom in your system and your body. Mm-hmm. I believe that really deeply. It Sometimes it just needs a little pattern disrupt. Like yoga for you might pull you out of those tangled up wires in the body. Yeah. And help you remember
1: so that's what I'm getting at
0: okay because I agree
1: with you but like if your nervous system is is stuck in a place that's leaving you constantly dissociated mm -hmm. that doesn't deeper than that the body has wisdom yes and that's what I'm getting at is like there is a place in which your body is not confused yeah. And it might right. be deeper than you can get to, and that's yeah, the point I of think this that's, work. That's kinda like to my you're mind.
0: entering into the divine space. Right. Right. Um
1: Yeah. Closing thoughts, comments?
0: Um No, I think closing with the intelligence and the wisdom of the body I think is really important. Hmm. Um, paying attention to where we can unconsciously want to manipulate our own bodies for our own good. Mm hmm. So instead of learning to hold the suffering of the body, because to be here in the human realm, I think is to suffer. Yes. And a lot of other things. Right. And to love and to connect and to experience bliss. But like a part of that is suffering.
1: That's the Christ myth, quite literally. The yeah. myth of embodiment.
0: Um so I feel like we have this kind of unconscious propensity to try to manipulate our experience to kind of take a little detour around that suffering mm-hmm. but i feel like embodiment work is actually creating a capacity again coming back to the paradox of i can suffer and still be in complete love at the same time
1: mm,
0: Totally, christ
1: yes Find, Find you, you.